This is a recording of the people of Canaan, a new reading of Moses 7 by Adam Oliver Stokes, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Adam Oliver Stokes. Abstract. Moses 7 is one of the most famous passages in all of Restoration Scripture. It is also one of the most problematic in regard to its description of the people of Canaan as black, verse 8, and as a people who are not preached to by the patriarch Enoch, verse 12. Later, there is also a mention of the seed of Cain, who also are said to be black, verse 22. This article examines the history of interpretation of Moses 7 and proposes an alternative understanding based on a close reading of the text. In contrast to traditional views, it argues that the reason for Enoch's not preaching to the people of Canaan stems not from any sins the people had committed or from divine disfavor, but from the racial prejudice of the other sons of Adam, the residue of the people. Verses 20-22 who ironically are the only ones mentioned as cursed in the text. Verse 20. In looking at the implications of this passage for the present day restoration, this article notes parallels between Enoch's hesitancy and various attitudes toward black priesthood ordination throughout the restoration traditions, including the community of Christ, where the same type of hesitancy existed. existed. This article argues that rather than being indicative of divine disfavor towards persons of African descent, this tendency is a response to the racist attitudes of particular eras, whether the period of the Old Testament patriarchs or the post-bellum South. Nevertheless, God can be seen as working through and within particular contexts and cultures to spread the gospel to all of Adam's children, irrespective of race. Editor's Note we are pleased to publish this article from an author outside the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but from a related Restoration Faith tradition. Adam Stokes was formerly with the Community of Christ and currently is ordained Apostle and Elder in the Church of Jesus Christ with the Elijah Message, the Assured Way of the Lord. Adam notes that while the Book of Moses is not officially part of my church's canon, my own personal beliefs still accept the Joseph Smith translation slash inspired version as inspired and sacred scripture, and I read it often. We are grateful for the insights Elder Stokes kindly provides for the book of Moses. Moses 7 is one of the most beautiful passages in the entire scriptural corpus of the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Its description of a heavenly Zion, a place of perfect peace, where God himself dwells, in opposition to the earthly domain full of violence and bloodshed, is a powerful attestation to the necessity of God's presence in the world and the consequence of rejecting God in our lives. The significance of Moses 7 is seen not only in its inclusion in the Pearl of Great Price, but also in its inclusion in the Community of Christ, formerly the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, Doctrine and Covenants 36. It is one of only two texts from the Prophet's Old Testament revisions included in the RLDS Doctrine and Covenants, the other being Moses 1. At the same time, the history of interpretation of Moses 7, in conjunction with material from the Book of Abraham, both of which are part of the Church's standard works, 
has been highly problematic within Latter-day Saint circles. A particular concern is the Texas treatment of the issue of race and the question of whether skin pigmentation is a sign of divine disfavor. Such theories have, fortunately, been officially disavowed by the church, but questions remain about the meaning of some passages in scripture once used to justify disavowed theories or racist folk doctrine. In contrast to the Book of Mormon, example, 2 Nephi 5.21, where the first part of the construct phrase, skin of blackness, has a semantic range that does not necessarily imply physical pigmentation due to genetics, black ethnicity, and consequently pigmentation, appears to be linked to a specific group, or perhaps two groups, the seed of Cain and people of Canaan in Moses 7. First, I must acknowledge that the Hebrew names of Cain and Canaan have different roots and thus give no evidence of linguistic relationship based on the apparent similarity in the names. The seed of Cain and the people of Canaan may also be widely separated in time, though both groups seem to be antediluvian, having no known connection with the much later Canaanites of the Old Testament, or Canaan, the son of Ham. But as presented in Moses 7, it is possible that the two groups are related. In Moses 7.4, we see God showing Enoch a vision of the world for the space of many generations, in which he sees the people of Canaan who were despised by others after having a blackness come upon them. Moses 7, verses 6 through 8. Later in verse 22, Enoch sees the seed of Cain and notes that they had not place among the other sons of Adam, for the seed of Cain were black. This may indicate that these two groups are related though whatever the blackness that was come upon the people of Canaan suggests that they did not originally possess this blackness. The existence or absence of a relationship between the two groups does not affect the overall argument presented in this paper. In any case, as discussed later, both groups are identified as black and appear not to be under the same criteria for judgment as the other children of Adam to whom the gospel was preached and who consequently have no excuse for their rejection of it. One could argue that the seed of Cain and the people of Canaan in Moses 7 are so far removed from our own history that it is difficult to identify them and their descendants with any ethnic group currently in existence. However, the material in Moses 7 has been influential for common views in the church on matters of race and more specifically for how the church has understood the status of Af persons of African descent related to its ministry and thus enhanced understanding of the issues in Moses 7 could be helpful for us today. The history of interpretation of these verses in Moses 7 and other relevant passages of our scriptures has been noted and discussed extensively by those within and outside of the church. These include Armad Mouse's groundbreaking work, All Abraham's Children, Changing Mormon Conceptions of Race and Lineage, the recent 2018 edition of Newell Bringhurst, Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, the Changing Place of Black People Within Mormonism, and Richard Abenace explicitly polemical anti-church work, One Nation Under Gods, A History of the Mormon Church. As these researchers have noted, for well over a century, many defenders of the church turned to Moses 7 and other sacred texts to argue for persons of African descent as a cursed race, and consequently unworthy and unable to receive the priesthood. Even post-1978, with President Kimball's revelation on the priesthood, the text has continued to provoke discussion both among adherents to the faith as well as opponents and critics. This paper will provide an alternative reading of Moses 7, which in some ways complements and counters standard Latter-day Saint views. 
Four arguments are made in this paper. One, Moses 7 both reflects and challenges the prevailing understanding of race and ethnic prejudice in the ancient world. Yes, concepts of race and prejudice, though vastly different than ours, did exist in antiquity. The people of Canaan of Moses 7 are never, never mentioned as being cursed in the text. Rather, their blackness is the result of God cursing something else, i.e. the land. Number three, the only people mentioned as cursed in Moses 7 are the residue of the people. Verses 20, 22, and 28, which, as the text itself notes, does not include the seed of Cain. Chapter 7, verses 20 and 22. In contrast to the prevailing reading of Moses 7, the text implies condemnation not of the seed of Cain, slash people of Canaan, but of this residue of the people due to both their hatred of the people of Canaan and their general rejection of the gospel message preached by Enoch. Number four, Enoch's rationale for not preaching repentance to the people of Canaan in Moses 7 is not due to any personal animosity toward them or from the view that they are cursed. In other words, his rationale, as the text explains, is different from common interpretations and readings in the Latter-day Saint tradition. This paper focuses solely on the material found in the prophet's revisions to the book of Genesis and will bring in parallel material from the Hebrew text of the Old Testament only when necessary and relevant. Joseph Smith's revisions of the Old Testament were understood by the prophet as restoring lost concepts and doctrines removed in past centuries by those institutions controlling the Bible's reception. This includes addressing issues and concerns that the Hebrew Bible, in the form we currently have it, is largely though not entirely silent about, such as ethnicity and race. In this regard, the prophet's revisions, while of course related to and informing us about the biblical text, must be examined on their own terms. History of Interpretation In addressing the interpretive history of Moses 7, it is first necessary to ask how much influence this segment of Joseph Smith's revisions would have had on Latter-day Saint understandings of race from the mid-19th century to the present. While the record, particularly the revelations found in the Book of Commandments and the later Doctrine and Covenants, makes it clear that the prophet was inspired to revise the Bible during his lifetime, these revisions did not gain prominence or a major audience until long after the prophet's death, when they were published as part of the Pearl of Great Price in 1851. Even then, the majority were not included in the Pearl of Great Price. In contrast to the Community of Christ, for whom the revisions would become the inspired version, and the official Bible of that church via Emma Smith, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints reaffirmed the status of the King James Version as the authoritative Bible for the church. Yet the placement of a portion of the revisions in the Pearl of Great Price as part of the Book of Moses assured that members would have access to them. With the canonization of the Pearl of Great Price as a standard work in 1880, these portions of the prophet's revisions likewise gained canonical status as scripture. Other revisions to the Old Testament made by Joseph Smith would be included one century later in the 1979 and 2013 official Latter-day Saint versions of the Bible in its appendix and footnotes. At a minimum, the revisions, while not being viewed with the same authority as the Genesis stories in the King James Bible, have been highly influential in how Latter-day Saint readers have interacted with and interpreted the biblical text and the primeval history, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 in particular. By itself, Moses 7 contains no material relevant to the issue of black African descent in the priesthood. However, in conjunction with other scriptures, there emer later emerged a racialist interpretation of the text. 
The Book of Mormon contains reference to a curse placed upon a group of people, the Lamanites, for their sins. Second Nephi 5, 20-24, Alma 3, 6-7. Though never identified as black Africans, this curse appears to be associated with skin pigmentation and hence implies dark skin as a sign of divine disfavor. The Book of Abraham, another standard work in the church, then mentions the Egyptian Canaanites. From the opening of the text, these Canaanites are viewed as adversaries of Abraham and are identified as descendants of the biblical patriarch Ham. Now this king of Egypt was a descendant from the loins of Ham and was a partaker of the blood of the Canaanites by birth. From this descent sprang all the Egyptians and thus the blood of the Canaanites was preserved in the land, the land of Egypt being first discovered by a woman who was the daughter of Ham. Abraham chapter 1 verses 21 to 23. The text goes on to note that this woman, by means of her Hamite lineage, was responsible for creating that race which preserved the curse in the land. Abraham chapter 1, verse 24. This verse, when taken by itself, implies that the land, rather than a particular group of people, is cursed, paralleling statements in Moses 7. However, the larger context of the chapter does clarify the content of this curse as seen in its description of the first Egyptian pharaoh. Pharaoh, being a righteous man, established his kingdom and judged his people wisely and justly all his days, seeking earnestly to imitate that order established by the fathers in the first generations, in the days of the first patriarchal reign, even in the reign of Adam and also of Noah his father, who blessed him with the blessings of the earth and with the blessing of wisdom, but cursed him as pertaining to the priesthood. Abraham chapter 1 verse 26 as, as Restoration Theology developed in the decades after the Prophet's death, and as various voices attempted to provide an explanation for the priesthood ban to persons both within and outside of the Church, Abraham 1.26 was linked to material in Moses 7 as a proof text. In the process of this merger, the Canaanites of the Book of Abraham, presumably identified by the Prophet as the same Canaanites mentioned in the Old Testament who inhabit the Promised Land, became fused with the people of Canaan mentioned in Enoch's vision. One example of this can be found in the writings of Joseph Felding Smith, who wrote, Not only was Cain called upon to suffer for killing Abel, but because of his wickedness he became the father of an inferior race. A curse is placed upon him, and that curse has been continued through his lineage and must do so while time endures. Millions of souls have come into this world cursed with a black skin and have been denied the privilege of priesthood and the fullness of the blessings of the gospel. These are the descendants of Cain. Moreover, they have been made to feel their inferiority and have been separated from the rest of mankind from the beginning. Enoch saw the people of Canaan, descendants of Cain, and he says, And there was a blackness came upon all the children of Canaan, that they were despised among all people. In the spirit of sympathy, mercy, and faith, we will also hope that blessings may eventually be given to our Negro brethren, for they are also our brethren, children of God, notwithstanding their black covering, emblematic of eternal darkness. Here, Smith combines the material in Moses 7 with the Canaanite priesthood ban in Abraham, even though his only explicit quotation of scripture comes from Moses 7, which contains no reference to the priesthood ban connected to black skin. Smith's explanation would become common in the church until the 1960s. In dialogue with the Civil Rights Movement, Latter-day Saint voices would later reject the notion of the divine curse upon persons of African descent. Ironically, such a rejection is a correct reading of Moses 7, while at the same time upholding the priesthood restriction. 
From the time of the 1978 revelation onward, church doctrine highlighted the superior status of official declaration two over earlier theological discussions of race in the priesthood. Hence Elder McConkie's famous statement, it doesn't make a particle of difference what anybody said, ever said about the Negro matter before the first day of June 1978. It is a new day and a new arrangement, and the Lord has now given the revelation that sheds light out into the world on this subject. As to any slivers of light or any particles of darkness of the past, we forget about them. We now do what Meridian Israel did when the Lord said the gospel should go to the Gentiles. We forget all the statements that limited the gospel to the house of Israel, and we start going to the Gentiles. Notwithstanding, some scholars and writers highlighting the post-1978 dispensation of the priesthood to all worthy male members of the church reflected the earlier standard scriptural interpretation in their discussion of the topic. For example, David Ridges in his commentary on the Pearl of Great Price writes, One of the great blessings of our day is that we live in a long-awaited time when the gospel is going forth into all the world. The priesthood is available to all worthy males. This is according to the revelation that President Spencer W. Kimball received in 1978. Ridges is commenting on Moses 7.22, which in and of itself does not mention the priesthood in relation to blacks. That he discusses official declaration 2 presupposes a reading of Moses 7 in conjunction with the statements on the priesthood in Abraham. Furthermore, within some Book of Mormon belief traditions, this merged racialist reading of Moses 7 persists, as seen in the recent statements made by the now excommunicated Denver Snuffer. In his book, Passing the Heavenly Gift, he argues that official declaration 2 represents a theological about-face to Joseph Smith's original teachings as contained in his Bible revelations and the pre-1978 church. As he puts it, rejection of the church's traditional interpretation of Moses 7 as supporting the priesthood ban may, may, quote, have fulfilled an ominous prophecy about Latter-day Saint Gentile rejection of the fullness of the gospel. A far more explicit and nefarious interpretation is evident in the teachings and writings of convicted FLDS leader Warren Jeffs. Though he does not explicitly cite chapter and verse of Moses 7, it is clear that he is drawing on a tradition of racist readings of it as seen in his connection of Cain to the black race. It should also be noted that for all fundamentalist Mormons, i.e. polygamous sects, the inspired version compiled from Joseph Smith's Old Testament revisions is the Bible over and above the King James Version or other English translations. To provide a couple of Jeff's quotes, Cain was cursed with a black skin and he is the father of the Negro people. He has great power and can appear and disappear. He is used by the devil as a mortal man to do great evils. If you marry a person who has connections with the Negro, you would become cursed. It is important to note that Jeff's and his views have been thoroughly denounced by all mainstream Book of Mormon believing traditions. My contention here is that racialist interpretations such as his are not the only possible way to read Moses 7, and furthermore, that they represent an inaccurate way of reading the text. Moses 7 in dialogue among different racial perspectives prevalent in the ancient world. Critics and opponents of the church often point to Moses 7 as an example of modern racist thought in a text purporting to be ancient. As such, they argue, the text is, in fact, not ancient at all, but reflects the social and ideological influences on Joseph Smith in the early to mid-19th century. As much as my academic context often restrains me from doing so, 
I cannot prevent the apologist in me from responding to this accusation. To summarize something that I could go into much further about, I firmly believe, as the prophet himself stated, that he was divinely inspired to restore many plain and precious truths to the Bible lost throughout the generations. We can debate profusely on what the term inspired means in the context of Joseph Smith's Old Testament revisions, but for myself, this means the prophet was given the means to interact with what was indeed an ancient and lost text slash version of the Bible. Furthermore, the discussion of race in Moses 7 points to the ancient nature of the text, a, di a text in dialogue with other perspectives on race in the ancient world. This stands in contrast to the prevailing anti-Mormon view that the book of Moses, like the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ or the Ahopse Bible, is merely another example of American-created biblical apocrypha. When one hears the term racism today in the West, one almost automatically thinks of prejudice based on the color of a person's skin. In the United States, anti-black racism immediately comes to mind for most of us. However, even this understanding of racism, as Benjamin Isaac notes, does not encompass modern examples of racism in their fullest form. Furthermore, it represents a form of racism that would have been largely unknown to persons prior to 1600 CE and incomprehensible to the ancients. In other words, racism, as we define the term today, is a relatively, if not exclusively, modern innovation. This is not to say that racial prejudice did not exist, but it, as Isaac also points out, it was a prejudice unconnected to skin color. Rather, the ancients promulgated the idea of inferior and superior peoples irrespective of their pigmentation. Hence, Aristotle viewed non-Greeks as inferior peoples, though admittedly the Greeks living in the era of his pupil, Alexander the Great, had an appearance similar to the Persians that he and other Greeks despised. At first glance, this ancient form of racial prejudice may seem to run counter to what we find in the book of Moses. Yet later in the Greco-Roman era, there does emerge a negative association between blackness and black skin color. It is important to note here that blackness at this time is not yet equated with inferiority. Rather, this association stems from Greco-Roman dualism, which equates light with good and dark with bad slash evil. Hence, to give one example, in the life of St. Anthony, a late Christian Roman text, the devil appears to Anthony as a black African man, not because black Africans are viewed as inferior, but because their skin color links them with the attribute of darkness, and consequently, evil. Again, it is only in the 17th century and beyond that this view of darkness as evil is linked with racial inferiority, leading to the emergence, but not exclusiveness, of this color-based racism that presently exists. Moses 7 presents a dualistic connection between skin color and good-slash-evil similar to what we find in other ancient texts. The blackness that comes upon the children of Cain as an after-effect of the Lord cursing the earth seems to be interpreted by the other groups mentioned in the text as a negative attribute and something worthy of ridicule. At no time is it said in the text that the other nations view the children of Cain as inferior, but only that they hate them because they are now black when presumably they were once white and fair-skinned. Hence, one of the most prominent features of racist thought in, ancient, in modern times, the connection of skin color to inferiority, is lacking and absent in Moses 7. 
This is to be expected if we are indeed dealing with an ancient text that in some way was revealed to and interpreted by Joseph Smith. At the same time, in contrast to what one finds in ancient Greco-Roman literature, this association of blackness with evil is clearly condemned in the Lord's rebuke of the other nations for having hatred in their heart for their black brethren. As other scholars have noted, and as we will address later, this finds parallel with the condemnation of racism presented in other Restoration scriptures, such as the Book of Mormon. Moses 7 Human-sanctioned prejudice against the people of Canaan or the seed of Cain. Thus far, we have dealt extensively with the subject of how various persons have engaged with the Moses 7 text from the mid-19th century to the present. It is now time to look at the content of the text in and of itself and on its own terms. From henceforth, all references to Moses 7 will be taken from transcription of the original revisions as presented in the Joseph Smith papers. No mention of the priesthood is explicitly made in regard to the people of Canaan, nor the seed of Cain in Moses 7, though admittedly the text does suggest that they do not receive the full dispensation of the gospel, since Enoch did not preach to the people of Canaan. Verse 12. The majority of our information about the black people of Canaan comes from Moses 7, which provides an expanded narrative on the biblical patriarch Enoch. Whereas there is only a single mention of Enoch in the Hebrew text, the revelatory material provided in these chapters gives an account of Enoch's youth and prophetic calling. At the beginning of Moses 7, Enoch has a vision of two clans of people, which reads, And it came to pass that I beheld in the valley of Shum, and lo, a great people which dwelt in tents, which were the people of Shum. And again the Lord said unto me, Look, and I looked towards the north, and I beheld the people of Canaan, which dwelt in tents. And the Lord said unto me, Prophesy. And I prophesied, saying, Behold, the people of Canaan, which are numerous, shall go forth in battle array against the people of Shum, and shall slay them, that they shall utterly be destroyed. And the people of Canaan shall divide themselves in the land, and the land shall be barren and unfruitful and none other people shall dwell there but the people of Canaan. Moses chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. In the following verse, the people of Canaan are explicitly identified as being black. For behold, the Lord shall curse the land with much heat, and a barrenness thereof shall go forth forever. And there was a blackness come upon all the children of Canaan, that they were despised among all people. Moses chapter 7, verse 8. It is important to note here the object of God's wrath. It is not the people of Canaan themselves, but rather the land slash earth that is cursed by God. Their blackness, according to the text, is a result of environmental factors that arise in the aftermath of this curse. The heat and barrenness in the land produces a physical change to the people of Canaan, namely black skin, but the blackness itself is not a curse. In other words, a distinction needs to be made between the objects of the divine curse, the land, and the victims of the negative effects of this curse, namely the people of Canaan. It should also be noted that the theme of divine wrath towards the land in the aftermath of human violence parallels what one finds elsewhere in both the Hebrew text of the Old Testament and in the prophet's Old Testament revisions. In the Genesis flood story, for example, the violence of humanity results in the land becoming corrupted, Nishchata, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 12 and eventually destroyed. Prior to Enoch's vision in Moses 7, it is said that God cursed the earth with a sore curse 
because of the wickedness of the people. Moses chapter 5, verse 56. The theme of human wickedness brings us to our next observation, namely the identity of the people who are explicitly mentioned as cursed in Enoch's vision. The accursed people, not the people of Canaan. There is only one reference to accursed people in Moses 7. This reference follows the description of Zion, God's utopian city. As Moses 7.19 informs us, Enoch builds the city at God's command and calls it the city of holiness. Enoch is so impressed with this city and its glory that he boasts, Surely Zion should dwell in safety forever. Moses chapter 7 verse 20 Enoch's boast is met with the following reply from the deity. Who are the residue of the people? We have a clear identification of them a few verses later in Moses chapter 7 verses 22, which reads, And Enoch also beheld the residue of the people, which were the sons of Adam, and they were a mixture of all the seed of Adam, save it were the seed of Cain. For the seed of Cain were black, and had not place among them. In other words, this residue cursed by God includes everyone except the black people of Canaan. They are the other peoples on the earth who have engaged in wickedness and unrighteousness, facilitating the need for a global flood so that humanity can restart, as noted in Moses 8. This identification is reinforced in Moses chapter 7, verses 20, verse 23, which notes that after Zion was taken up into heaven, Enoch beheld, and lo, all the nations of the earth were before him. In other words, this residue does not consist of the righteous who have been granted access to Zion and taken into heaven, but the wicked who remain on the earth and comprise all people or races from our modern perspective, with the exception of the black people of Canaan. Enoch's Prohibition Against Preaching to the Black People of Canaan and the Community of Christ's Doctrine and Covenants 116. Shortly following the description of the people of Canaan at the beginning of Moses 7, we are presented with this passage regarding Enoch's prophetic ministry. And it came to pass that Enoch continued to call upon all the people, save it were the people of Canaan, to repent. Traditionally, Latter-day Saint voices generally before 1978 appealed to this verse in support of the position that missionary work should not be undertaken among black communities, either in the United States or globally. In conjunction with other scriptural passages such as Abraham 1, this reading implied that persons of black African descent were themselves culpable for the circumstances behind the prohibition. Yet an examination of the larger context of Moses 7 reveals a deeper issue and provides us with insight into the reasons for Enoch's interdiction. First, the prohibition against preaching to the people of Canaan is not described as a divine injunction. Nowhere in the book of Moses does the Lord command Enoch not to preach to the people of Canaan. The prohibition then may stem from Enoch's own concerns and not from God. This leads us, however, to the question of why Enoch instituted it. Clues to his rationale can be found at the end of Moses chapter 7 verse 8, which notes that after receiving their blackness, the people of Canaan were despised among all people. Later in Moses 7:22, which mentions the accursed residue of the people, it is noted that the seed of Cain were absent because the seed of Cain were black and had not place among them. Might it be that Enoch's choice or commandment to not preach to the people of Canaan does not stem from anything that the people of Canaan themselves have done, but from the prejudice of the other sons of Adam toward them? Might it be possible that if Enoch had attempted to preach to the people of Canaan, 
The hostility he had already encountered from his fellow human beings would have, would have been intensified, making it impossible for him to succeed in his prophetic ministry. Though other possible explanations exist for the hatred incurred upon the people of Canaan by the rest of humanity, the rest of Moses 7 strongly supports this view and suggests God's own disapproval of the racial hatred of the other sons of Adam towards the black people of Canaan. In Moses chapter 7, verse 29, Enoch asked the Lord, How is it that thou canst weep, seeing thou art holy, and from all eternity to all eternity? The Lord's reply provides us with one of the most powerful repudiations of prejudice in all the scriptures. Behold, these thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands, and I gave them to them their knowledge in the day I created them. And in the garden of Eden gave I unto man his agency, and unto thy brethren have I, all, have I said, and also gave commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me their father. But behold, they are without affection, and hate their own blood, and the fire of my indignation is kindled against them. In short, the racial hatred that the sons of Adam displayed towards the black people of Canaan, a hatred condemned by God himself, may have been so strong and prevalent that it would have interfered with Enoch's preaching had he attempted to direct his message to the people of Canaan. This would also explain why the Canaanites are not part of the races actually cursed by God, the non-black sons of Adam. They are not culpable for rejecting the gospel given that it was not offered to them by Enoch. Of course, in the modern dispensation, at a time when racial issues, however bleak at times, have improved overall, the gospel is available to all the children of Adam. Enoch's reluctance to preach unto the black people of Canaan parallels a situation within my own former tradition, the community of Christ. In the community of Christ, Doctrine and Covenants, a specific revelation, Doctrine and Covenants 116, was given to Joseph Smith III regarding ordaining and ministering to persons of African descent. In this respect, the revelation is similar to Official Declaration 2 found in the Latter-day Saint scriptures. At the same time, the community of Christ's revelation implies a situation similar to Enoch's during the antediluvian period as rationale for this reluctance. It reads, Be not hasty in ordaining men of the Negro race to offices in my church. For verily I say unto you, all are not acceptable unto me as servants. Nevertheless, I will that all may be saved, but every man in his own order, and there are some who are chosen instruments to be ministers to their own race. Be ye content, I, the Lord, have spoken it. Community of Christ, Doctrine and Covenants, 116, verse 4. In modern versions of the Community of Christ's Doctrine and Covenants, the introduction to Doctrine and Covenants 116 notes that the revelation, given in 1865, should be studied against the background of the American Civil War and with the social and educational status of the American Negro of that period in mind. While the revelation as a whole approves of black membership and ordination into the church, its message and context seem to suggest that being hasty in accepting and ordaining blacks may lead to hostility. As with the Enoch material in Moses 7, this hostility does not come from black opposition or unwillingness to accept the gospel, but rather the cultural and social context of the time. At the end of the Civil War, black Americans were only beginning to be recognized as American citizens, and the fierce opposition to the idea of black citizenship will continue into the Reconstruction Era and beyond. Hence, caution was necessary if the spreading of the gospel was to be successful. Conclusion 
In this article, I have attempted to provide an alternative exegetical reading of Moses 7, dealing with the black people of Canaan. I propose that this passage of scripture never curses the people of Canaan with black skin, but that this blackness is the result of another object incurring divine wrath, namely the earth itself, which, as in the Hebrew flood story, is cursed due to the violence of the people inhabiting it. I have also argued that Enoch's decision not to preach to the people of Canaan stems not from any personal animosity toward them, but likely from concerns that the hatred of the other sons of Adam towards the people of Canaan would hinder people from accepting the gospel message. When read in this light, Moses 7, far from being a racially problematic text, presents a progressive racial message in which God himself condemns the prejudice and cruelty of the other sons of Adam. It is this cruelty, in conjunction with the rejection of the gospel, that results in the residue of the people being cursed, a curse from which the people of Canaan themselves are spared. I find it necessary here to provide a point of comparison here between my reading of Moses 7 and David Belknap's excellent analysis of the depiction of the Lamanites in the Book of Mormon. In his recent article for Interpreter, The Inclusive Anti-Discrimination Message of the Book of Mormon, Belknap takes a radically different approach to the sacred text focusing not on the presentation of the Nephites in the Book of Mormon, the standard default position for Book of Mormon exegetes, but that of the Lamanites. Belknap persuasively and effectively argues that while the negative statements about the Lamanites in the Book of Mormon have been highlighted both by the book's advocates and opponents, the text ultimately and primarily presents them in a highly positive light. As such, the Book of Mormon ultimately promotes a radical, egalitarian, and anti-racist ethic which elevates the dark black and Lamanites over and above their pure and white and defite counterparts. He notes that in the majority of instances that the Lamanites are mentioned in the Book of Mormon, it is either as equal or better than the Nephites, and that in many cases the Lamanites are presented as spiritually superior to the Nephites. There are obvious and immediate differences between how the Lamanites are depicted in the Book of Mormon and the depiction of the people of Canaan in Moses 7. The latter text provides little explicit information in regard to the spiritual state or standing of the people of Canaan. At the same time, Moses 7 infers that while excluded from Enoch's preaching, they are under no condemnation themselves and they are not convicted of the same sins as that their counterparts, the other sons of Adam, are judged and condemned for. The hatred of them comes from purely human sources, reinforcing the idea that racial hatred then and now is a human problem, not a divine one. Adam Oliver Stokes has degrees in religion from Duke University and Yale Divinity School. His work has been featured in numerous publications, including BYU Studies Quarterly and the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. He is the author of Perspectives on the Old Testament, Diverse Approaches from Ancient to Modern Times, and The Latin Scrolls, Selections from the Five Megalote, Translated from the Latin Vulgate, both published by Cognella Academic Press. For over a decade, he has taught Old Testament at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, and currently teaches high school Latin in Penns Grove, New Jersey. He is additionally an ordained apostle and elder in the Church of Christ with the Elijah message, The Assured Way. This has been a recording of The People of Canaan, a new reading of Moses 7 by Adam Oliver Stokes, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 47, 2021. Read by Adam Oliver Stokes.